So, none of you would tell me this, but I know that you ask yourself the question over and over, like, why do I go to church every week? You know, do I really need to go to church every week? Uh, and one of the reasons we go to church, I think, every week or, or listen to preaching on a regular basis is simply, it's not always the data that's the most important thing, but it's the paradigms that we come to um, come to hold. It's, it's the way our minds are shaped, uh, the worldview that kind of comes about. And that becomes incredibly powerful when we start talking about the paradigm level. Paradigms are kind of uh, like when the light bulb goes on, that aha moment, you never forget them. So I remember in college, it's like the second year of college, when I, I, I realized the gimmick with textbooks, right? I mean, anyone, you, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Textbooks cost like 60, 70 bucks, whatever. And there's like 12 editions or 15 editions or 20 editions of that textbook. And when you go to the bookstore, there's new ones and there's used ones. And used ones are a later, like an earlier edition, and the new ones are a newer edition. And so you can buy it for 20 bucks or you can buy it for full price and get the up-to-date edition. And you kind of always feel like, well, I need to get the up-to-date one. Why? Well, because the page numbers, you know, are going to be different in the older edition. And so after your freshman year where you had to use books, you're like, all the assignments are off because the page numbers are wrong. So you're like, okay, I should always buy the new ones. And then you realize that the only thing different is the page numbers. <laughs> and it dawned on me, like my second year of college, like, if you sell a whole bunch of books and then there's a used kind of black market in the used books, you as the publisher and as the writer are now cut out of the money train. There's just all these old books in circulation and, and there's no new books being sold and you're cut out of it. So what you do is you change the page numbers, maybe write a little bit more of an introduction, uh, do nothing else other than just bump the edition number up, and now all the people have to buy the new edition and you're getting the money train instead of the, the used kind of black market. I mean, do you guys know where I'm going? This is a very emotional thing. This is, this is a huge. When that light bulb went off in my head, I understood capitalism. And I have, I have never forgotten it since. You can always get beneath it and realize that the people that are really closest to the thing are smart enough to realize how to monkey with the thing so that, so that it works, right? And that's a paradigm. The light bulb goes on. You never forget it. Every time you see a used textbook next to a new textbook, you get what's going on. And, and I've been trying for the last number of weeks to get at a paradigm level event. Just had a flashback to that movie, uh, Deep Impact. Extinction level event. E-L-E. This is a paradigm, P-L-E. This is a paradigm level event that God, if he's in the center, uh, everything ripples out correctly from there. If we don't have that correct and we start with something, even if it's a good thing, we're going to somehow get it wrong or mess it up because this thing, the, 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 the cornerstone, the foundation isn't there first. And so even though it's good to hammer nails into two-by-fours or whatever when you're framing out a house the right way, it doesn't matter if the, the foundation's cracked. Do you see what I'm saying? It doesn't matter how good we do this good thing if we don't get the first thing right. And so we've been trying to talk about this idea of just really having God at the center. Uh, what Oswald Chambers says, we, we've got to pray with our eyes on God, not our eyes on our problems. And so we can't start in other places. We start with God kind of at the center. So that's kind of the paradigm I've been going for. And what I realized is I want to, I want to kind of camp on paradigms for a while. Because there's other... Uh, I want to camp on universals. Let me back up. I want to camp on universals because I think they're paradigm-level things that we don't really understand correctly. So truth to us... We don't really have the right paradigm for it. We think it's something out in front of us to evaluate. And the, and the idea with truth, if I can draw it for you, as a universal, is... Uh, it's telling me my appointments. Um, 
So here's what a universal is. This is a coat hanger. Here we go. Do I need to redraw it? There it is. All right, this is a coat hanger. What we got to realize about universals, universals are things that are always there. They're, they're there when you're not looking at them. They're there when you are looking at them. You can't get away from them. Does that make sense? So truth is like a coat hanger that other things hook onto, like doctrine or um, reality or whatever. There's, th- there's things that are true and not true. It's it's with ideas or logic. There's a certain rectitude, a certain right ordering. It's called in philosophy or epistemology the correspondence theory of reality, which means that, that truth is what corresponds to what is, to what is real. And, and so it doesn't matter whether I'm looking for it or not, what's real is real. It doesn't matter what I want to believe about God or about the universe, what is, what's real, is true. I can't, I can't play with it. It's universal. It's there. And if I just want to ignore it, I can do that. But what I'm doing is just turning a blind eye to something that is all around me and that's, that's absolute, that's universal. Does that make sense? Um, it's necessary. It's absolute. And if we get that paradigm, it's going to change the way we look at truth. Love is the same thing. Love is a universal. We don't understand that. Uh, love is universal in the sense that it's a right ordering of emotions. It's a right ordering of the way we see relationship and the value that we're willing to put into relationship. It exists at all times. That's why you can say that God is love. Because at all times, because we're, we're relational beings made in the image of God, uh, and we have souls and we have hearts symbolically, uh, at all times, there's an appropriate amount of love that should be engendered in me, an appropriate amount of sacrifice that should come from that love. And whether I turn a cold eye to it or not, what ought to be with love is universal. Does that make sense? Now, we water it down and we make it less than a universal. We make it a means to another end. But that's why when Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 13, he goes on about love And then he says, the greatest of all these things is love. And Jesus says, when you boil down all the commandments, there's love. Because when everything that's that's a means is is now cooked down to its proper end, you understand means and ends, right? I go to the grocery store not because the grocery store is my end, but it's a means for me to get food. Does that make sense? Like means and ends. So when we boil down all the means— and we, we kind of put them into what the appropriate end is, what we're left with is love. A certain rectitude, a certain aligning of what ought to be with our emotions. So um, it's a universal. It's absolute. There's a third one that we're going to talk about today, and then we're going to talk about love in a couple weeks, and then we're going to talk about truth uh, a few weeks after that. We're interspersed with a couple guest speakers. By the way, Jerry Root one of the premier C.S. Lewis scholars who teaches out of Wheaton, former professor of mine is going to be here next week. It will be the best sermon uh, ever at Antioch except for all the ones I've done. And uh, I'm, ser- I'm serious. Jerry Root is uh, uh, an amazing dude, amazing dude. He's a pastor at heart, so he's like ridiculously engaging too. Um, but so we're going to kind of camp for three weeks on these absolutes. The one I want to do today what really motivated me to go into this is it's something we've talked about a lot at Antioch, but I think I've failed, and it's justice. We've talked a lot about it, and I think I've failed miserably, and and what I realize is usually when I screw Antioch up, um, it's me screwing Antioch up. And I've heard a lot of things that make me realize somehow when I've articulated it, I've articulated it as a means not as an end, as a particular, not as a universal, and it's, it creates a lot of confusion. Why do we talk about this so much? I had the typical form is someone told me they were in an argument with someone for three hours about justice, and it was 
why would we talk about justice? And the idea is that the justice here was seen as the legal system, as just a, a small piece out there. And why would we get that so out of proportion with regard to other things? Uh, I had someone else ask me or, or tell me very, very graciously, hey, I don't mind if we talk about justice as long as we talk about marriage and stuff like that equally. And I, I kind of stopped at that moment, went to a whiteboard and drew this out because it, it dawned on me that I haven't correctly communicated justice as a universal. So I don't know if I can keep this drawn. I've got. But you've got to understand, justice is not one thing like marriage is a thing and then justice and then why would we, why would we not spend equal amount of time on them? When the topic of marriage came up, this was the analogy I gave this individual, I said when the topic of marriage came up for Jesus, what did he say? He said, it's not okay, you guys, to so quickly dismiss your wives with a, a written kind of divorce certificate uh, and basically put them out. It's not okay, unless it's in the case of infidelity, that you would so lightly break the covenant and by, by consequence leave this person in a position of lower status, lower economic sustainability, uh, lower resource and ability to take care of herself or the kids. You're essentially doing an injustice to this person. And it's not okay. And so when Jesus talked about marriage, what did he tie it back to? He tied it back to doing this kind of divorce is an injustice that you should not do. It's not okay for you to do, um, period. And so when Jesus talked about marriage, he tied it back to a higher thing that said you can't violate just principles just because you want to. And what we have to understand is that justice, like truth, like love, is an absolute in the sense that it exists everywhere, even when we're not looking for it. Justice is a certain rectitude or rightness with regard to the structures and the ordering of relationships. So it doesn't matter whether we're going to talk about it or not talk about it. It doesn't matter whether we see it or don't see it. But justice is there in the fabric at all times. I'm either acting justly and honoring what is due, what is fair, what is equitable, what is harmonious, or I'm choosing not to do it, or I'm choosing to violate it. Those are the three options, but it's there in the fabric at all times, just like truth is. Does that make sense? Let me read a couple quotes for you. C.S. Lewis said this, Kingdom people seek first the kingdom of God and its justice. Church people often put church work above concerns of justice, mercy, and truth. He was basically saying we're getting means and ends kind of messed up. Jesus ran into the Pharisees who were really proud of what they had to offer, what they'd cooked up. And Jesus says, hey, that's not bad. You put a good nail into that two by four, but you don't have the foundation there. You should have done that, but not neglected taking care of, of the poor and the needy. Listen to what William Lloyd Garrison said when he began writing uh, The Great Abolitionist, when he first began writing, he said this, I will be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. These things are very analogous in that they're always there making demands of us. Whether we want it or not, they exist Pascal said this, Justice and truth are two such subtle points that our tools are too blunt to touch them accurately. If they reach the point, they either crush it or lean all around more on the false than on the true. There's an, an aspect of justice that I don't think at a paradigm level we've fully grasped. And that it's not just something that we talk about because, you know, hey, it's cool. We're not into church growth here. Um, someone once said that competing with churches over people is a lot like two ants uh, arguing over who gets to eat the elephant. We, 
there's so much work to be done and so many people out there that need to be loved that, that trying to do cool things just for the sake of growth is just kind of silly, right? I mean, it's not, it's not the driver. We're not talking about justice for those kinds of reasons. We're talking about justice because it's, it's a paradigm thing. And if we don't understand it that way, if the light bulb doesn't go on like the textbooks or like economics, then we're not going to understand how to order our lives, how to order our church, how to order our relationships. It is a, a paradigm level event. When uh, we look at what the word justice means, it's right there in the definition. The French version, more recent than the Latin, brings in a lot of jurisprudence, that idea of the legal system, uh, and, and uh, he deserves justice or, or he got his just desserts. But if you go back to the, the Latin, what, where the, the word comes from, the etymology, it really means a right ordering in our relationship with others, being able to render to each what is due. So as everyone's made in the image of God, as God basically commands us to have certain ordering in our relationships, the, that structure is everywhere, that we would act in accordance with that. That's where we get the idea of fairness or equity and those kinds of things. Does that make sense? So the word itself brings in this kind of right ordering. And so when we look at verses like this, let me just read them to you. James 4.17. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. If there's a idea of justice that God has placed over the ordering of our relationships and even our structures, okay, uh, the kings and the, and the queens of old were always supposed to rule fairly, meaning create structures that would bring about justice. If there's this right ordering, we know what we're supposed to do, and we don't do it, James says it's sin. Now, we, we're familiar with that verse, and we don't really think of it as a, a justice verse, but look at Proverbs. I think we've got it on the board. Look at Proverbs 3.27. It's a lot of where James was borrowing from, but it looks a lot more like justice, doesn't it? Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. We tend to capture the idea of justice more in what's called the silver rule than the golden rule. The silver rule is the harm principle. Like if we... If we actually hurt somebody, that's not okay. Does that make sense? Like, um, if I'm the one perpetrating violence against you, then I'm unjust. I get that. The golden rule, however, says what? Do you guys know? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The silver rule says, do not uh, do unto others as you would... Am I saying it right? Golden rule, do unto others, um, do not do. You know what I'm saying? I'm just going to skip past it because I'm, I'm getting like mind tied, tongue twisted. Uh, the golden rule says I have this obligation to do. The silver rule says I have an obligation not to do. So as long as I'm refraining from acting against you in a way that would harm you, I'm in the right. And our culture lives by the silver rule. There's a lot of sociological reasons, psychological reasons, but when, when all those studies come about of why two dozen people will look out their windows and watch somebody for a half hour basically be beat to death or something without doing anything, it, it really manifests and shows that we make ourselves immune from what is going on as long as we're not the one, uh, the agent that's that's doing the violence. I'm, it's, not, it's none of my business. I'm not the one that's doing that. It's a shame that that's happening, but I'm okay. I'm a good person. Why? Because I'm not doing that. When the golden rule would say, if I was the one being beat, I would want somebody to, to go out of their way or maybe even risk themselves to help me. The golden rule would force us to be engaged. Proverbs says, when you have good that you can do to someone, when it's in your power to do it, you ought to do it. Justice demands from us 
that in the ordering of things, in the ordering of relationships and structures, that we not only just have to not trip on things, but to the, to, to the degree that we have ability and power or influence, there's an obligation for us to enact justice, to bring about shalom, the way things were created to be, the way things in the kingdom of God should work, because God is speaking into that, and it's true, it's right, it's whole. Does that make sense? If, if this argument is true, then here's, I think, my, my biggest thought. We can't know God accurately if we don't understand paradigm-level, universal-level categories. I don't think we can know God accurately if we don't understand love. I don't think we can know God accurately if we don't understand truth. And I don't think we can know God completely or accurately if we don't understand justice. You understand the weight of what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, if you think you're going to know God, or if you're going to know God to the fullest that's possible for you to know God, you have to understand justice as a necessary component to that. The phrase I use for this, and I want you, I want you to disagree with me right now because then I'm actually having a conversation with you. And then maybe you'll stick around for Redux and we can, we can hash it all the way. I want you to, you know what I'm saying? We're, we're doing church now, okay? Let me say it again. You cannot know God fully if you don't understand justice. The phrase I use for that is that justice is a theological necessity. Theology is a combination of two Greek words. It's the study of God, the Greek word theos for God. It's the study of God. It's how we come to know God. Now, I want to to explain this. You know God by three things. Write these down if you want. You know God by the character of God. You know God by God's creation, and you know God by God's revelation. Those are three ways in which we know God, okay? We understand this, I think, intuitively, and as Christians, we're kind of raised up into this. It's that, that's not a challenge. So here's uh, Psalm 19 about creation, and we all kind of know this. Um, isn't there one with just the top one without the bottom one? It's like giving away the punchline. There we go. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they do what? They pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Okay? God's creation, the heavens, the stars, the work of his hands, they help us understand who God is or to a degree the nature of God. Paul talks in Romans that even people that don't have the revelation of God and maybe don't understand the fullness of God's character, that, that all they have is creation, that, that that's enough for them to begin to look towards God and to seek after him. The skies pour forth knowledge about God. You, you can look at creation and come to a deeper theological understanding of God. You can come to know God better. Do we, we all kind of get that, right? So that's just preaching to the choir. Let's look at the next verse, though. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The Lord is known by his justice. We don't typically talk like that, do we? That looking at justice, knowing justice, studying justice uh, is actually a part of how we come to know God. Why? Because just like God is love, God is just. And it flows from the character of God. And it's also, as we're looking on the board here, in his revelation about himself. 
It's how he created the world to work, the right ordering of relationships. It's in the character of God, and it's in his revelation. And so we have to come to understand justice to know God fully. Turn to Jeremiah with me, if you would. Jeremiah chapter 22. You may have heard, may not have heard this passage before, but it's incredibly instructive for what we're talking about here. Chapter 22, Jeremiah the prophet is prophesying for God, and he's prophesying against the son of Josiah. Josiah was a good king. His son did not follow in his way, Shalom, and now he's prophesying, Jeremiah is, giving the word of the Lord against Shalom. And he says this in verse 13, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing, like forced labor, and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Do you think a king... Because you compete in cedar. Did your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? So now what he's doing, he's comparing his son with his dad and making the distinction. Did your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He had a good life. He was happy. He was satisfied. He had joy. He had peace. Didn't he have all that he needed because he was able to eat and drink and then do justice and righteousness? He judged the cause, verse uh, 16, he judged the cause of the poor and needy, and then it was well. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain and for the shedding of innocent blood, and he goes on. Is this not what it means to know me? If you think about it, you've got a guy that's so selfish that he's using other people to serve his own interests, committing an injustice. What type of injustice is he committing? You guys guys ready for this one? This is the category called social justice. That has to do with workers and wages. That's right. I just said social justice in church. church just got a lot more fun. When we think that justice isn't a universal and it's just these categories out there, we tend to pick and choose and we have what we like and what we dislike. So, you know, I'm all for justice, but I don't don't like that social justice crap. What do we really mean by that? You see, if I drew it, I don't know if I can erase this. How do I start over? I'm I'm erasing. All right, so I'm starting over now. If we understand justice correctly, it exists. It's a circle. I have have many talents that you are not aware of. We can call justice, we, we can say the whole circle by itself is, whoa, is, uh, whoa. Sorry, guys, I'm having. We can say that the whole circle is justice, but then we can begin to piece it up for clarity, okay? Kip made me get rid of my paper pad where I could draw with my beautiful handwriting, and he gave me this Etch-a-Sketch, and um, so please have grace. What does it look like when we piece it up like a pie graph? We can call this ethics. We can call this business law. We can call this international law. What is international law? It's how certain countries would deal justly with other countries. We don't think about it a lot, but 
you get to a place like Congo or something like that and begin asking questions about how other nations have dealt with them and you begin to realize inter international justice is a huge deal. Everyone in that country gets the trickle down of what the policies are of other countries around them interacting with them. Um, we could continue on, but here's a category, social justice. What does that mean? It means justice in the social arena. Instead of the business arena, instead of the international arena, it means justice in the social arena. What does that mean? It means this, that we treat everybody as being made in the image of God in our social settings with regard to race and discrimination, with regard to fairness of, of treating women, gender, uh, and not creating value distinctions that would do an injustice to who people are. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Justice in the social arena is what, what God was just talking about here, that we wouldn't use our power to abuse the powerless or use our gender to abuse the other gender or use our race to be able to make distinctions against other races who have been, over a long period of time, neglected or alienated or marginalized. Frankly, the alien or the foreigner, uh, the foreigner comes into this too. All throughout the Old Testament, you see the alien, the orphan, and the widow. We're really fond of the orphan and the widow. I've begun to learn we're not really fond of the alien or the stranger. We usually put the word illegal in front of it, and then what we do is we choose to begin to stop thinking of alien and begin thinking of the word illegal, which means what? Our emotions towards that person are how bad they are because they're breaking the law. If our emotions were on the alien or the wanderer or the foreigner part, we would be empathizing with their plight. Regardless of what our political views are, we would empathize with the plight. I just was talking last night to someone in this church who teaches school here, who has a, a woman with kids in her class, kids are American citizens, the ex-husband of the woman, just to spite her, calls immigration services and, and exacts his revenge by pointing them to this woman who's living in Bend. And now this, this woman is in tears in front of the teacher with the kids that have grown up their whole lives here and trying to figure out, what do I make of life? I don't even have a husband to help me through this process. What do I do? Now, again, whatever your political views are, that story is a story that should evoke emotion and a degree of sympathy. So we do something really funny when we begin to act like social justice is something that's disconnected from justice, the universal, and disconnected from us. It's not a universal. It's not necessary. It's just one of those things, and we distance ourselves emotionally from it, all the while feeling like we're really close with God. Jesus comes to the Pharisees and he's just like, really guys? You, you think you're so close to God, yet your heart is so callous and cold towards these people that are living in these circumstances or situations that you should have a degree of empathy for and use your influence or power to maybe even try and help and somehow you've separated that out so that it's not a necessary component of your faith. And Jesus is like, it has everything to do with your faith. If you really knew God, if you understood theology, you would understand that God is with the orphan and the widow and the alien. Does that make sense? So we've got the Psalms saying God is known by his justice. We've got God specifically after a social justice verse. By the way, let me just clear something up. This is why I think good thinking always has to prevail in church. You can disagree, you can disagree all you want with distributive justice, which is, which is the word for wealth redistribution, which is a sliver of, but not entirely, social justice. You can disagree with strategies for enacting social justice. You can disagree with how social justice is, is going about being done, policies, government. You can disagree all you want, but you can't say that social justice, justice in the social arena, is bad itself. Does that make sense? 
And if you're going to disagree with wealth distribution or disagree with immigration policy or disagree with anything else, it is incumbent upon you to have a solution for social justice that you can argue against somebody else's strategy. If you're going to say you don't like this way of trying to bring about equity or fairness, you think that long-term it's not a good solution for a country or whatever, or, or it doesn't, just plain doesn't work, you are entitled to that opinion, and you can come back with a better idea. But then you've got to submit your idea to critique, just like you're critiquing this idea. And then it becomes a matter of wisdom as to which theory of trying to do what's best for people really is ultimately going to be the right just theory. But saying justice in the social arena is just stupid or dumb or liberal or democrat is, is lazy and I think theologically irresponsible. Do you understand? So God has just said, Shalom, who doesn't understand his fellow man and is acting this way, uh, it was not like his father. God took fa uh, care of his father, blessed his father, and his father did justly. And God says, is that not what it means to know me? From the character of God, the way he's created it and how he's revealed himself, we learn that we cannot fully know God unless we understand justice to a degree or, or as correct, uh, correctly as we can. Listen to what Richard Baxter, Baxter says, and we'll put it on the board here. Richard Baxter says this, Nothing can be rightly known if God be not known, nor is any study well managed, nor to any great purpose, if God is not studied. Does that make sense? Nothing can be rightly, rightly known if God be not known. When we study God and we learn about his character and we realize that justice flows from the character of God, reacts to the image of God in other people, and as we're studying and understanding that, we then come to know that justice is something that we have to take into account as part of our knowledge of God. It's a theological necessity. Here's what happens. We need to look at justice with fresh eyes. This is a critique of myself. I grew up, and I went to seminary, I, I preached, and I began to realize over time that I was reading the scriptures without the right paradigm in place. And so I went back and tried to reread everything with fresh eyes, and it was amazing what I found. Turn with me quickly to 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm about to blow your minds. You guys ready for this? You, you're going to say when this is done, yeah, that just happened. David, what did David do? Say it loud. 2 Samuel 12. What did David do? He committed adultery. Poor David um, is a moral failing, purity failing, right? Isn't this what you've been taught your whole life? Listen to what Nathan, remember the story, David does all these things, then Nathan the prophet comes, he tells him a parable, a story, and what he does is he, he hides David's name and he, he elicits the principle. David reacts as king to that principle, and then Nathan is going to turn it and say, yeah, that man is you. Listen to what Nathan says. 2 Samuel chapter 12, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. <clears throat> and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb instead and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David cuts in. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arm. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it were too little, I would have added more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him by the sword of the Ammonites. Therefore, the, sh- the sword shall never leave your house. What did David do? Nathan came to him and says, there's a rich man that abused his power and took advantage of a poor man. David's response, he deserves to die. Why? Because he committed an injustice. And he has to pay back fourfold what he stole. Why? When you commit an injustice, what's the thing you need to do? Restitution. I always thought David's problem was he didn't take a, uh, take a cold shower fast enough, right? That's not David's sin. David's sin was that he abused the power given to him. He was made shepherd of Israel. He was supposed to use his power to serve his people. And instead of using his power to serve his people, he abused it and took from the poor or the weak or the needy, the very people he was put in that position to take care of. And God says, you have, you have committed a gross injustice. And somehow we grow up telling the story to our kids, and it's just an adultery story. But that's not where Nathan went with it. And that's not how David responded. Turn over now to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 3. What I'm trying to show you here is we've tended to read some of these hallmark passages through a, a paradigm that misses the justice component. I mean, are you, are you beginning to nod your head? Here's another one. What did Solomon ask for when God said he could have anything? Wisdom. Wasn't it a great request? Right? We, we, wor- we, we don't worship. We, we revere Solomon because of his great request for wisdom. Listen to what happened. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. At, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. We all want to hear that, don't we? And Solomon said, you have shown great steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and the uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him as a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. I'm not yet fully mature. I don't have a lot of experience. I'm really young. And you've given me this whole kingdom. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for uh, multitude. Verse 9, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for whom is able to govern this your great people. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked for this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you before and none like you after shall rise. I give you also what you have not asked, riches. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as, as, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Listen to what it says in the NIV. The Lord was pleased, verse 10. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your en- enemies, but for discernment, in administering justice. You, you hear it in both passages. We treat Solomon as if he asked for wisdom, as if wisdom was this great treasured thing. And without realizing it, we make it an end. For both Solomon and for God, what was the wisdom? It was a means, right? Did you hear it? 
It was a means for administering his duties as the king to see that justice actually reigned in his land, that fairness and equity and harmony would be the hallmark of that kingdom. God gave him wisdom so that he would have the ability to discern what is right in administering justice. David, what did he do? Committed an injustice. Solomon, what did he ask for? The tools so that he could be a just king. Let's give you one more. What did Sodom do? Sodom's a city, in case you don't know. Ezekiel chapter 16, if you want to turn there quick. We've got to move fast. Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. What was Sodom's sin? Anybody? Immorality, right? Licentiousness. We, we have words derived from Sodom. We all know what Sodom's sin was. We, we've been taught it. And God judged you know, Sodom and Gomorrah for their licentiousness. What does the prophet, though, giving God's perspective on Sodom say? Ezekiel 16, verse 49. You ready for this? Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. This is what Sodom did wrong. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them. Licentiousness and immorality tends to come from an abundance of selfishness. An abundance of selfishness necessarily means that you're not rendering or you probably don't have the energy or the concern to render unto others what is due them. These two things go together, morality and justice, but let's understand very clearly that when we end up being so focused on self, what ends up happening is we do an injustice to the fabric of justice and to the relationships around us. And so we tend to look at the purity issue. Why it's visible. Why it's offensive. Why, I don't know, we do. We tend to look at the purity issue, and we say, that's the sin, and God's like, that's, that's visible and it's manifest. But what really gets me is the injustice that's being created because there were people that needed this money, this attention, this energy that these people spent on themselves. And yeah, when they began to spend it on themselves, they engaged in all sorts of things. But the great injustice was what happened to the weak and the needy. David, justice. Solomon, justice. Sodom and Gomorrah, justice. Justice is a universal. When we have the right eyes, we begin to see it everywhere in Scripture. When we have the wrong eyes, we tend to be like the Pharisees. We take the word righteousness and we think it means purity or holiness, which means justice might be a good thing, but it really has nothing to do with my faith. That's where we begin to go. I, I grew up in that culture. Did anyone else? Well, justice is for the liberals. By the way, this is what John Stott called the great reversal, that somehow the church that used to always be about charity somehow ended up kind of making themselves immune from justice issues and just caring about purity or morality. And so because of that, we began to, to, to learn that the word righteousness meant purity or morality. The truth is the word righteousness actually is synonymous with justice. We have two verses. We can just throw them on the board. They're used interchangeably in Scripture. Proverbs 8.20, I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice. Psalm 103.2, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. And then it continues on, The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. These words are used interchangeably 34 times in the same verse interchangeably as synonyms 34 times in Scripture. 
The New International Dictionary of the Old Testament says this, Righteousness is not a matter of actions conforming to a given set of absolute legal standards as the Pharisees taught. Not just purity or morality, conformity to rules, but of behavior which is in keeping with the two-way relationship between God and man. Right relationship with God, right relationship with others. The two greatest rules are to love God, to love others. That we're in harmony, we're in a just relationship, we're in a right relationship as we're situated into a relational fabric that God created in this world. Creation, character, revelation. Matthew 6, we hold. Um, Matthew 6. Jesus says this. We're going to do it quick. Turn there. This is so important that we understand the paradigm we're trying to get at here, that justice is not just a good thing. It's a necessary thing, and it's overarching, and we talk about other subjects in relationship to it. It's not just, why is Ken talking about justice again? These two things... Justice and other aspects of the Christian life are not pitted against each other. Do you understand? Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Holiness, purity, morality. But listen to how it continues. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpets before you as the, the hypocrites do, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What does this passage assume? When you give to the needy, social justice. When you, or justice in the social arena if you prefer. I mean, it's the same thing, Okay. Uh, when, when you give to the needy, well, wait a second. Beware, this is the way he hooked it at the beginning. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Practicing your righteousness, holiness, purity, morality, what we've come to believe righteousness means. When you do that and you're giving to the needy, wait a second. This just means like having a purity ring or not smoking or not swearing. Righteousness has nothing to do with that that social justice stuff. But here's Jesus saying, when you practice your righteousness, your justice, your diakasune, which is the same word, righteousness and justice, share the same Greek word. When you practice your justification, when you practice your righteousness, when you are giving to the needy, do it in, re- in reflection of who God is, that this is a part of his character. Don't do it for selfish ambition. It'll ruin the justice of your action. Do it because it's part of God's character, part of his creation, part of his revelation, because your heart is to be in right relationship with God and others. I began to realize I was thinking about justice so much, I began to feel like maybe I was doing something wrong. And I was like, did Jesus think about something a lot? And I was like, yeah, he did. He thought about the kingdom of God a lot. Well, maybe justice for me is like the kingdom of God. And then I thought, well, that's kind of arbitrary and, you know, just pulling your own card and kind of creating your own standard thing. And I'm like, oh, that's maybe. And I'm like, well, maybe justice is the kingdom of God. And then I'm like, well, I'm really forcing it now. This is in the shower, like six months ago, a year ago, something like that. So I'm going to the car and I'm still thinking about it. And all of a sudden this verse that I memorized, because I used to be on a joy kick way back when. And, and I memorized this verse because it had to do with joy, but it's in Romans chapter 14. It says this, The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. The kingdom of God is defined for us as righteousness, peace, and joy. And then as I'm turning the keys in my car, I'm like, Diakasune, peace, arene, joy, kara, diakasune. So I call Gary Bashir's on my way to work. Gary's at Western Seminary, as conservative as it gets. So Gary, diakasune, arene, which, which would have been more shalom, the wholeness of everything knit together, and then ultimately the joy that comes from that. Diakasune, it's justice. Why is it righteousness? Can't I just say the kingdom of God is justice, peace, and joy? 
Gary's comment, not only could you, you should. If you're talking about biblical justice, the fullness of justice as a theological necessity, that's what that verse means. Righteousness is used there because in the rest of Romans, they use the word justice to talk about salvation. Justified, justification. And so to keep that clean, they use the word righteousness, which is actually a synonym for right relationship with God and right relationship for others, to keep it clean in this passage in in Romans 14. He says, if you're talking about biblical justice, then absolutely, it's justice, peace, shalom, and joy. It is a part of the hallmark of what God has. It's a part of what he's created for us, his ideas for us. It's what, what's revealed in scripture to us. And we're supposed to grab hold of that and understand that somehow things relate back to it. The thing you love in scripture, the thing you care about, the thing you get excited about relates back to justice some way, somehow. Um, we're going late today. If you need to grab kids, please do. I'm going to tell you just a story, and then we're going to watch a video. And after the video, I'll close this down. Here's the last thing. Because justice is a universal, it exists everywhere. I used to get excited about justice as a cause. If you guys remember being a part of Antioch at the beginning, you remember that. Here's a cause. We can sink our teeth into it. The immaturity in that is that it does an injustice to all the places that justice exists that we're not seeing or not focusing on. Justice exists in the Congo just as much as it does in the, the, the schoolroom of Lindsay Hendricks where she's talking to people that are facing deportation. It exists in your workplace. It exists in your marriage. It exists in your mind and how you treat people, whether it's equitable or not. Justice exists everywhere. And I've really been challenged by this, that there are so many places that exist that I, I, I don't see. And we should be overwhelmed and be very teachable and humble in that. Let me just give you this story. Uh, I went to Ghana recently with Micah and Jared and Eli. They were shooting a video project for Micah that World Relief was sponsoring. It's going to be released at the Justice Conference. Uh, and Michael will be re- uh, winning the Grammys within a year. Um, it's the most phenomenal, both spoken word and then video. It's two-disc set. It's unbelievable. So we were in Ghana, and we were learning about justice and visiting um, and d- doing studies on slave history. And we visited the Elmina Slave Castle, uh, a big part of the transatlantic slave trade, and we were learning about it. And we came across, what I didn't expect is we came across, that's Almina. This next picture is the view from the governor looking down on the courtyard where women to the right were kept. And they would be brought out daily for the governor to pick which woman he was going to rape or make his concubine. And I was so, the transatlantic slave trade over, over you know, hundreds of years is such a broad 20,000 feet look at something, an injustice. When I was standing there and, and thinking or empathizing with the gender violence uh, and the injustice to these women and just the way these men would treat them, um, it really affected me. It was, it's a whole part of this that I just obviously had never really thought about. So I kind of was like, you know, this really matter. I want to learn more about it. So there's a scholar there uh, who went off to England, got his PhD, came back, lived in Cape Coast, Ghana. And he came and we were talking. I was like, is this just a, something they talk about on tours? Or is there evidence to this? Is there documentation to this? He's like, well, the mulattoes. This is a Portuguese fort. The mulattoes in this area, which, which is a Portuguese word for, for half-breed, basically. Um, so you can do anthropological study and see how much intermixing there was in this area. And I'm like, okay, well, but in writing, I mean, what was there in writing? So I kept pushing him, kept pushing him. And then he says, well, there's this thing in, in, Portu- in Portuguese. I was studying in the archives in Portugal and, and going back and studying a bunch of documents. And there's this thing that kept coming up over and over. And it was how they would choose, often choose a woman. And I'm like, oh, this is fascinating, a Portugal writing. So I'm really intrigued. And I'm like, how? And, and he's like, you know, they used to have a song they would sing to pick the woman a lot of times. And, 
and it went like this, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I didn't need to hear anymore. And I was so blown away that this silly little nursery rhyme kind of song that I used to sing as kids growing up about who is going to whatever has this history. And so I started looking into it. We began looking into it in Ghana. Do you know that, I mean, a lot of you that are an older generation know that for most of American history, it wasn't tiger, which, by the way, is slang in Ghana for a black person, European slang. But in the South, it was a derogatory term for African-Americans. So I was at the African Diaspora Museum in San Francisco and began telling this story to the museum curator. And before I even got there, she goes, oh, yeah. You mean my mo catch a nigger by the toe? Yeah, I grew up with that. And I, I, as I looked more, there was a lawsuit about five or six years ago, Southwest Airlines, a woman that was a, shutting the door on the aircraft. She was a stewardess and she, or flight attendant, and she, she started singing, eeny, miny, mo, it's time to go, you know, and she had a little thing with it. And there was an African-American couple there that was really offended. Why? For them, this is so powerful and symbolic and hurtful. For me, growing up white, middle class, I'm so blind to so many things that other people have endured or things that I've done that, that began to put me in a participatory role with history and traditions that created such injustices against people. And so what I've realized is justice is not a cause. It certainly shouldn't be a hobby. It certainly shouldn't be something we do because of fashion or like whatever. It's something that's a theological necessity. It flows from the character of God, and, and it's the image in other people, and so we engage in it. And if we're going to do it and do it rightly, we come to a, a humble position of realizing we're never going to do it right. I could give a thousand stories. You could give a thousand stories. We're all going to be overwhelmed by all the injustices, and what we're going to come to realize is I can't do it all I can't fix all that. I can't do all the stuff I'm supposed to do. I'm helpless to really do justice right. And then all of a sudden we realize this. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. We are not able to be just. It's not that we're not able to be pure. We're not able to be just. And it's grace that makes us just. It's grace that says we who can't be just in our relationship with God and can't be just in our relationship with others that are so needy, it's grace that comes along and allows us to be justified. Justification. So that we can be treated as just people. The word for that, hagias in Greek, saints. The adjective form, holy we can be treated as being blameless and perfect and just like we're getting this right because of grace. It's grace that makes us just. And so the more we come to understand that justice is an absolute, it's necessary, it's required, if we really understand that in all the places it exists, it's going to overwhelm us with guilt and eventually we're going to feel helpless and then we're going to realize there's some pretty good news in grace. Grace makes us just. Grace isn't just like a ticket to heaven so we can go on living selfishly. Grace takes overwhelmed people that are unable and, and incapable of doing what justice would demand and it allows us to be justified and to stand in the presence of a holy God. Um, we're out of time. I'm going to show this video. It's of Micah at the Elmina Castle. I think it'll put an exclamation point on all this. And then I'll do a quick wrap-up. Uh, and if you want to stay for questions, I'd really love it. Um, if you need to leave at any time, please do. But this is Micah on his new DVD project in Ghana. If divinity were not fiction, I would thank God for evolution. It's a comfort to know Homo sapiens are ever increasing in intelligence because our history is truly animalistic. But now we recognize how unsophisticated we used to be in former times like 17th century Gold Coast. As lambs for the slaughter, people were gathered in flocks, shackled and stocked in cells, awaiting their lives to be bartered for alcohol and weapons. 
and after their buyers and sellers negotiated how many bottles of rum were enough to take away their freedom, they were ushered through the door of no return, hoarded into ships and stacked like boxes of cargo, because they were cargo. But only the fittest survived Poseidon's anger, and once they arrived in the new world, they were again paraded and sold, like property like the animals we once were, but thank God for evolution because that was 400 years ago. And now we know how unsophisticated we used to be in former times like 20th century Germany. As lambs for the slaughter, people were gathered in flocks, shackled and stocked like matches in a box awaiting to be burned. Names exchanged for numbers and once their digits were up, they were ushered through the door of no return. But thank God for evolution, because that was seven decades ago, and now we know how unsophisticated we used to be in former times like yesterday. Cambodia, where another girl was abducted and taken to Phnom Penh, becoming one of the estimated 20 million global sex slaves. As lambs for the slaughter, they are gathered in flocks, shackled and stocked in brothels, awaiting their lives to be bartered. And after their buyers and sellers negotiate how many dollars will take away their freedom, they're ushered through the door of no return. And abused. Like property. Like the animals we used to be. No. We are not involved. Whatever we are, we have been since the fall of Eden. And our increased intelligence only sophisticates wickedness correctly diagnosed by St. Paul as a race of mad scientists, inventors of evil things. And if we were evolving, I wouldn't want to see what demons we might be in the future. But Bonhoeffer said, Christ is not coming to devils, but to men. Certainly to men who are sinful, lost, and damned, but still to men. Let the slaves say amen, let the master be shamed, let the saints proclaim that we are still men, calling all to repent and become who we already are, forsaking hopelessness for faith as we anticipate evolution received from God. For the penitent shall all be changed, and history will never begin repeat its atrocities, for we will have truly evolved, resurrected from flesh corrupted to bodies of immortal glory, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Thank God for evolution, for we know how unsophisticated we remain today. But today will not remain. Justice is a theological necessity. The good news is grace makes us just. There are a lot, there are a hundred heroes in this room for me that engage in this community in Bend, Oregon and make a difference around the world. I love being a part of this church. I want to be able to celebrate that we talk about justice in a way that doesn't make it seem like it's faddish or cool or trendy, but we do it because it's rooted in the character of God. Um, that's all we got for you. I look forward to seeing you next week. Please stick around for Redux in about five to ten minutes. Um, God bless. Have a great week.